Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Awesome 80s Podcast. This is Michael. This is Lawrence. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How about yourself? Fantastic. Going to have another... We're not really going to do another film review. We're going to do an... Uh, what, what did you want to talk about, Glenn? <laughs> Great opening. Inspiring. Inspiring. Uh, first, I want to give a huge shout-out. I wish that I had balloons like coming down in the background. We have a fan who started listening to our show less than eight weeks ago and has completed 279 all our entire catalog of episodes if we go in order, this would be 281, but the last or 280, no, 281, but the last two are not out yet. But 279 episodes straight through, about an hour each, sometimes more, sometimes less, in less than eight weeks. That's a lot of us. Uh, congratulations, and congratulations on your your fantastic essay as well. <laughs> um, we, do, uh, so, we do have another fan, Brandon, who's has reached out to us. Did you you message him yesterday? Yeah, so I said this at the top of the show a few episodes ago, and I know that people uh, don't listen to our episodes in order sometimes. You pick based on topic, which I totally get. We know there are lots of big movies that we have not done yet. That is on purpose. We've done now, I guess this will be 281 episodes. You, you can't just hit the classics in the first 50 and then just just be done with it. So we there are a lot of great movies. Feel free to send them in. But we uh, we do have a method to what we're doing, and we will be uh, get hitting some of those movies soon, some later. But we will be hitting all of the classics. Don't worry. We've been here eight years. We don't have any plans to go anywhere yet. We have a long time before we get to the 90s, which we'll be talking about today. I, w- I would say that he's probably the next up for listening to the entire catalog. But we'll see. One step at a time. <laughs> uh so we just reward Superfan Josh, uh, A, because he did all that, and B, because uh, he lives within our general area. He's about an hour away. So we let him pick a movie, and he's going to come guest on it uh, here in a couple episodes, which is awesome. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. So great job, Superfan Josh. You've earned respect. I can't listen to Michael for that long, so I don't know how you did. Uh, so we've got a special guest. We do. Uh, first, you're, I know we're not a video podcast anymore, but the way you're looking at the camera is weird. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yes, so we do have a very special guest. Uh, back for his third appearance, which I think puts him in with the ranks of Keith Coogan. I think Garen might have one or two more, but so happy to have him back. Uh, Mr. Kevin Kukler, how are you, Kevin? Gentlemen, it's great to be back. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the Muhammad Ali on the cover of Sports Illustrated guest on this year podcast. <laughs> you, uh, we get so many comments when you are uh, on that it's fantastic, and uh, I know that you. We have had listeners who have started uh, reading your books based on you being on, so that's exciting for us to be able to think that we can at least some way contribute. And, and oh, thank you, listeners. Yeah, yes, we thank are. you, listeners. <laughs> they always are nice enough. At least we've had a few share on Twitter, and uh, you're always nice to uh, give a kind remarks towards us, which we appreciate. Uh, we're just uh, happy to have you. You, as we say, are our 80s knowledge Buddha. You have so much knowledge on 80s movies that a couple months ago I was sitting here thinking about what can we do next with Kevin, and I decided let's go 90s. Let's go oh. 90s. 
Excellent. Yeah, I, I it was it was a challenging question you posed to me because I I had to sort of get reacquainted with the '90s after the '90s when um, when Nirvana and grunge came along. I, I am a traitor to my generation to say such a thing, but I, I didn't I didn't get it. And I, and I'm a gentle soul, and and I just wanted to be a happy, miserable teenager, not an angry, miserable teenager. So um, grunge didn't do much for me, and when whatever revolution it brought in, I, I wasn't buying it. I, I was a I, I was a Tory instead of a patriot at that time. So <laughs> so I didn't pay much attention to pop culture in really the first half of the 1990s, and I had to get reacquainted with the decade sort of in retrospect. Um, but I think a number of the movies we are going to talk about, um, with maybe one exception, are, are from the sort of second half of the decade. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll, touch, we'll touch on exceptions. So I, I, I appreciate you, you, considering, you considering me um, having something wise to say about this. We'll, we'll see if that's actually true. Uh, Michael? Yes, Lawrence? We have done uh, some movies. Uh, we've done a series here and there uh, throughout this podcast, which we called '90s movies made or '80s movies made in the '90s," and that's kind of what we're talking about here. So we've touched on a couple of these. Uh, most of them we have not, uh, but there was, a, as you said, Kevin, in the second half of the '90s kind of I think kind of went away from the grunge and maybe tried to. It was for a little happier. Uh, you know, pop music started regaining its foothold in uh, America's hearts, and some of the movies kind of went back and touched on that nice, fulfilling '80s feel. Uh, Michael, what was your favorite movie that we've, uh, you and I have discussed in the past uh, from that genre of '80s movies made in the '90s, which is something we completely made up, so we should trademark yeah. that. We did discuss for uh, for a time when my wife got upset about us doing uh, Empire Records. It wasn't up to her standards uh, when we did that review. <laughs> yeah, uh, our review was not up to her standards. Yeah. So we well, we will start with uh, Empire Records. Uh, Kevin, did you see this movie when it came out? You said you were kind of absent from the decade. When did you first remember seeing it? I saw it shortly after it came out. Like I don't think I saw it in the movie theaters. Empire Records, as we know, was a was a bomb when it came out. So yeah. it was sort of here today, gone tomorrow in the in the movie theater. I think I caught up with it maybe a year or two after. I, I was mostly interested in that. Um, it was directed by by Alan Moyle, who had made who had done Pump Up the Volume before that. And Pump Up the Volume is a is a movie that has a very a uh, special place in my heart. It was the first movie I ever wrote about professionally that I got paid for as a 16-year-old intern at the at the Ann Arbor News in, in 1988. Um, and uh, or maybe maybe 1989. I, th- I think that's when that that movie. Yeah, came 89 out. probably. Been. Yeah, uh, it was a little bit later than that. But it was the first. Yeah, it was the first thing I ever. I first piece of writing about movies that I ever got paid for. So uh, and I happen to love that movie. Um, but uh, this was, I, I believe, what Alan Moyle did next. Maybe there was one in between them. I don't, I don't quite remember. Um, but I, I think my interest in Empire Records came about when, um, shortly after I graduated from college, um, which was 1995, I was still in the same town where I went to college, and I was acquainted with some people who were freshmen. So they were, they were four and five years younger than me. And they saw Empire Records as this, as this sort of generational talisman, the same way I had seen The Breakfast Club as one. Um, 
that I don't get. Um, I, I, I still, I still don't get it. Um, I don't think it's a great movie. I, and I have a soft spot for movies with multiple characters and interlocking storylines and, and, and particularly as a, as a, as a vinyl person, movies that take place in record stores. But, um, uh, I think, um, I, I think it, it, in, in some ways it is sort of seen as a a quintessential slice of mid-90s pop culture, and I think that has everything to do with the soundtrack and the wardrobe of the characters. Um, and the fact that it was it was during that boomlet of stuff being filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina, that kind of crested with Dawson's Creek. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the uh, I I the I think I'm about five or six years too old to understand why people five and six years younger than me see it as their movie. I, 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 I do not, you know, as, as warmly as I feel towards the gin blossoms, I do not find it to be my movie. <laughs> so I'm going to attempt to explain that to you. Okay. And I'm not, and, but I'm not saying I agree with it. Before you, before you get going, Glenn, before you get going, uh, full disclosure, um, our first podcast was going to be about pump up the volume, but we decided I was, against I was actually about to circle back. Okay. Yes. So, my people. Pod, yes, our first pod, well, well, maybe not for a minute, but we're gonna re, we're gonna regain it. So our initial goal when we talked about this, our first movie had to be Pump Up the Volume. We had to talk hard, and so if people go back to all the way back to episode number one, what you will find is twenty minutes of us shitting on Pump Up the Volume, <laughs> and I'm gonna explain why. Okay. So we both went back to watch it, and we. We also had no plan. We had never talked in front of a microphone before like this. Uh, I had an 80s radio show where I played 80s music at a college station, but that was it. And there was very little talk. And we were not skilled enough to find anything worthwhile to talk about at that time. (laughs) In fact, we decided that the movie just didn't hold up and wasn't worth reviewing. And we were both very disappointed by that. However... Once we did this for a while, we did go back and revisit it and found that we were wrong, that the movie did hold up to our what we remembered and that it is still that great movie. I just when I was a kid, pump up the volume while kid. God, I was we're younger, so I mean, by all rights, we should be having a nineties movie podcast based on our age. Uh, however, the eighties movies as it just spoke to us more because we were as we were kids growing up through that decade. But Pump Up the Volume, just it was one of my favorites. I just loved it. And when I watched it for that first time to do the podcast, whatever reason, it just didn't speak to me anymore. Uh, But as we've been doing this for a while uh, and we went back, it's still the great movie that I remembered it. I loved it. And I'm glad that we didn't do it that first time because I don't think we would have done it justice. I think we would have butchered it. And then we'd have to delete that from the archives and no one would ever get to hear our original episode one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Michael, anything to add on, on what you found with Pump Up the Volume before we continue? Uh, just talk hard, everybody. Uh, <laughs> um, what was talk it about? Hard. What was it about Pump Up the Volume that really sucked you in? I think just like the ability, I guess it would be like blogging before blogging was a thing. Just like the ability to speak your mind and be free and just like, especially like as a 12 or 13 year old, whenever Glenn and I saw it, it'd be like, I just want to, I want people to understand the real me, but just like the whole idea of him having his own ham radio or whatever, and just being able to do that. I think that's what attracted me to it. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of predicts the coming of the internet, you know, completely by accident. Um, and 
I, I, th- which is why it's always felt more like an early '90s than a late '80s film to me. It's sort of it's sort of drawing the curtain back on what is to come. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, I think, and, and you know, who would have guessed? You know, I, I think the other thing it it, it it foretells without really meaning to is who would have guessed that radio would have, would become this sort of area of media innovation? You know, uh, once the internet came along, you pretty much could have said, "Well, that's the end of radio." You know, everybody's going to be able Absolutely. to tune into the internet in their cars and and or um. And just you know, call forth the great jukebox in the sky, and and, <laughs> and 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 we're still arguing over what that looks like and what that means. You know, twenty years later, I, I mean, what is what is the shuffle feature on Spotify uh, other than your own radio station? Um, so I, yeah, I think I, somehow with ever meaning to pump up, you know, pump up the volume is like, is like the Marshall McLuhan of teen movies. You know, it, <laughs> it, 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 it predicted all this stuff that happened long after it was gone. Yeah. Uh, very well summed up. And I'm glad to get that off my chest. We have not talked about pump the volume for a while. I'm glad to come free that we were at, we were at fault. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's move on to empire records. Mm-hmm. So, First, my first experience with Empire Records was I don't I I've been trying to rack my brain here thinking it was the trailer for its VHS tape was before another movie and it wasn't Dazed and Confused as much as my mind is telling me it was but some other indie-ish type movie that wasn't really an indie but the you know the studios just low key played yeah. it and therefore you felt like it was indie because at that time that was what was, everything should be indie and whatever so. When I saw that trailer for the first time, this is what I heard. I heard Happy Gin Blossoms. Everyone loves the Happy Gin Blossoms, almost. Uh, I saw Friends, like, in an 80s sort of way, congregating at this record store, which was the coolest job you could have. Like, in the 90s, the two cool jobs you can get when you're 16 uh, were video store or record store. And the record yeah. store ones were dying out even then. So... Or they were becoming significantly less cool. Like it was at the time right. when when Sam Goody and Musicland were kind of taking care of, taking over everything. Yeah, I didn't want to go work at a Coconuts, so I, I you know this seemed like the old school. So I think to a person whose generation borders on eighties and nineties, to me that movie, what it represented was like, all right, I can be different, I can have cool friends. And work in this cool place, and everyone's going to have their happy ending because that's just the way it works out. Now, do I think it lived up to that? No, <laughs> but I still will put it on every couple years. Just be like, oh yeah, this. But the most important thing, this movie, which made it long outlive how long it should have been popular, is it was very quotable. So many quotes. In fact, just what two weeks ago, all of a sudden. The internet was it was Rex Manning Day. It's Rex I Manning didn't know day. Rex Manning Day had a day again. Like when did that happen? Who made it Rex Manning Day and why did we all participate in it? Well, I mean, just by by participating, I mean, hey, it's Rex Manning Day on my Facebook post. But like, why did that happen? But it's still there twenty, you know, three years later or so. It, it somehow succeeds completely in spite of itself. Like 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 the <laughs> like the criticism that 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 that. People writing about that movie at the time, Dave, is it, it, it it's a it's a lame, plotless movie that is just an excuse to peddle a soundtrack, and that's probably true. Um, and yet, uh, it 
it succeeds so well at being that that yes, it it, it manages to be quotable and memorable and totally of its and totally sort of mark a point in time, um, and 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 sort of skip gaily over its failures. I mean, the the whole thing with Mex with Rex Manning, who is clearly like in his forties, <laughs> and is like coming on to a teenager. I mean, it's gross. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, you know, bordering on felonious, but like, but somehow, somehow the, the spirit at the spirit and the light touch of this movie, you just, you just sort of don't pay attention to that. And, um, um, I, I don't know how. I, I mean, it, it, there is there's absolutely no reason, given what it does, that it should work. And yet, time time somehow manages to um, to to uh, be the final the final arbiter of these things. Yeah, uh, Michael, your wife, as you mentioned, has been unhappy with us for probably three or four <laughs> years. Uh, whenever we did review this movie, this is your chance to make it right. Tell me why Empire Records is great or not great. Well, I think she saw herself. She had maybe the third or fourth best job. She worked at an arcade slash miniature golf course slash golf. Uh, like uh, you could get on your, you could get in bumper boats kind of place. Oh, so yeah. Right. Yeah. She loved working Did at she that place. Grady's? It was like Grady's, but it was in St. Louis area. Oh, okay. She, uh, okay. I guess she, and they also had pizza there. And she, to, to me, like she felt like that was like her job. Like this is like my job. All the cool kids working at the cool job. And we'll go to Denny's afterwards. It's like it's like our job. We're the coolest kids. We we run this place. Hey, I, I worked at Denny's. No, but I mean, like at the at that the, was not the cool I, job. <laughs> yeah, oh no, it was not. That was the job where your friends will sit there for uh, eight hours and refill coffee for no tip. <laughs> And get grief if you charge them that dollar for said coffee. Uh, so would you like to address your wife now and tell her, like, maybe apologize to her? No, I I'm just – I think uh, I think she's got her female perspective, and I we had our guy perspective. And if she wants to start her own podcast, so be it. She can start her own podcast. <laughs> I'm just not going to help her. Okay. Uh a couple interesting things about this movie. Uh, so the '80s aspects, we've all kind of gone through it. But you have you have the shoplifter Warren Beatty. Uh, so you get he get the damn the man Warren quotes. Like I remember, like in high school, kids had like I may have had one, like a Xerox copy of just say damn the man Warren like on their. I don't know. I think it's those little things that is why people kind of paid attention to this movie. But I would say, let's just go with this. Do you think that this movie succeed or failed at being an 80s movie made in the 90s? Uh, we'll start with you, Kevin. I think it's. I think overall no, but I think it succeeds in one very definite way, in that it really is. It really has been set up by the fact that it's a record store that that that, that it's about a group of friends trying to save their place of employment, or i.e., a record store. It really is a vehicle for soundtrack, which which to be fair was a mode. That was probably first born with uh, with a movie like American Graffiti in the early in the early seventies. But the American Graffiti was a movie that was a giant, was an enormous success, and then someone was like, "Hey, let's capitalize on the success by releasing a soundtrack." Right. Um, the soundtrack as as a sort of as a sort of lead blocker for a movie comes along with the coming of MTV and 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 the consolidation of top forty radio. So. 
the movies that the movies that perfect that are movies like Valley Girl and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and immediately after that, Footloose and Top Gun, and um, and then all years after that, Dirty Dancing. I mean, those are really those are really the movies, and, and and of course the work of John Hughes. Those are really the movies that um, that perfect movie as music delivery. And without those, there's no Empire Records. I mean, there's there, Empire Records is completely the the uh, niece or nephew of of that kind of relationship between movies and music. Well said. Uh, if you would like to go back, oh, first, I'm sorry, Michael, you go next. I apologize. I mean, to cut you out. Does this movie succeed or fail? Well, I think for, uh, the, for, I think for the generation, it just feels like the epicenter was in the eighties and this is kind of the ripple out of that. And I think it definitely appealed Mm -hmm. to people, someone who's 15, 16, when this comes out, it is their movie. Like it, we're going to be naming our second child Warren. I'm just letting everyone know about that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. It's well, it's great. It's my grandpa's name, but it's also the name of the character in the movie. So I think it appealed to Delane in that way. So I think it definitely has an impact on, on her. And also I don't want to get too far ahead, but like, like clueless. And then this movie, like it definitely, it felt like the girl movies for her in that time period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you would like to hear more of us going in depth about this movie, you can go all the way back to episode 40 of the awesome (laughs) 80s podcast from November 12th, 2010. So it has been about seven years since we've last discussed this movie. We, my wife, my uh, wife and I, we, we bring up that date when, when we're in therapy. No big deal. <laughs> That's like the date you're just like, <laughs> it's like that was it. <laughs> that was the date that it was all over. <laughs> all right. So, yes. So we will move on. Uh, uh, thank you for your comments. If you have any other comments, feel free to tweet them at the Awesome 80s Podcast or go on the Facebook page. Uh, so next we will talk about Clueless, uh, since she brought it up, Michael, and that was on our list. Uh, so, Kevin, what was your first exp- – I mean, Clueless wasn't like Empire Records. Clueless had this huge rollout. It was yeah. months months of rollout. I remember going the first day into the theater with my sister. Uh, what was your first experience, Kevin? Yeah, the same thing. Like, like I, I had a, I, I had a crush on Alicia Silverstone because ever since seeing her in the trailer for a horrible movie called The Crush, mm. which, um, which probably that that title describes the action that should be enacted upon that movie. Um, the, uh, but. I remember, so I remember thinking, "Huh, I'm I'm 10% more inclined to see this movie." And then when I found out it was written and directed by Amy Heckerling, I was there the first week. Um, yeah, there was a huge buildup. They had a giant campaign with MTV, um, and Clueless, in retrospect, is the movie that kind of revived the teen genre. Uh, it's not like it didn't exist between you know Heather and Say Anything in 1989 and Clueless in the summer of 1995, but the focus of movies between those two dates about young people was really um, was really people in their tw- in their early 20s, people who had just graduated from college. So that was the time of yeah of movies like Reality Bites, um, and you know if such a thing can be can can be said to be a phenomenon because it was so tiny and such a blip uh, the sort of uh quintessential generation x we've just graduated from college there's a recession going on what what do, what are we going to do with our future right um, real real quick although it's not a great movie really by is in my top five of all time i still can watch it i love that movie 
Yeah, it's not not a great movie, but like Empire Records, it kind of beautifully bookmarks a period in time. Um, And, but I think, I think, the difference is, I think Clueless is a great movie. I, I think Clueless is is beautifully written. I, I think it's immensely quotable. Uh, people say they love the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is frankly neither here nor there. Um, it looks great, um, and it's and and it really demonstrates, in addition to dialogue, that that Amy Heckerling is perhaps one of the best actors, directors of all time. Uh, no one casts better than Amy Heckerling. And, and my favorite example of it in Clueless, though it's a small one, is um, the to me the most visible DNA between Clueless and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Amy Heckerling's directorial debut, is her treatment of the teacher character, where she takes a, a veteran actor she has been a fan of her entire life and gives them, you know, three to five scenes to really shine. Um, Ray Walson acted for 70 years, and in the end, what people are going to remember him for is My Favorite Martian and Mr. Hand from Half Times at Richmond High. Uh, same, same thing with Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn is a legendary figure in Broadway, in, in, in film, on television, and what we're probably going to take away from his career when he's gone are the words inconceivable and... And him playing, and him saying, "Thank you for that perspective, Cher." Playing the debate teacher in um, in Clueless, uh, I think I, I, Clueless to me is an immensely repeatable movie, and um, and I, I I I it brings me joy every single time. I think it deserves every bit of acclaim it's ever gotten, and I and I hope we'll be talking about it someday in the National Film Registry because I kind of do see that happening. Yeah, I could see this movie has such a longevity. Like, I mean, once again, quotable is one thing, but this movie, people don't just give you a quote when they talk about it. They will act out an entire scene Yeah. Uh, to this movie. Michael, what was your first uh, interaction with this movie? And then I'll go on my diatribe about the wonderfulness of Clueless. I, I had seen it. I didn't really, I mean, it was, it was kind of felt like a girl movie, but then the more you watch it, the, like, cause I think it, it's kind of been adopted by TBS or TNT where they, they play constantly. And you just, the more you watch it, the more it, it enthralls you. It, it brings you in. And especially the, I think it's the dialogue. It's definitely the dialogue and the dynamics between, you know, the, the, they bring in the, the girl who's not really as cool and they try to get her to be as cool. I hope it's not an eventuality. And especially my wife is constantly quoting this movie at me, expect empire records. And, uh, it just feels like it is one of those movies that is under those people from that era. And it continues to be like under people's skin. Like they know it. It is part of our culture. Now it is with us forever. Yeah, it's 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 the second time, you know, it, Amy Heckerling managed to make the movie a, a movie that symbolizes a decade twice. And, and I'm not sure any yeah. other I, I'm not sure that we can say that about any other director. And um, you I'm sorry. No, no uh, go ahead. You mentioned uh, her casting and you uh, you brought up a couple of very good examples. But let's just look top to bottom like at what she did with this movie. So she managed to pick on Alicia Silverstone. She managed to pick her at the height of Alicia Silverstone fandom. I know uh, she had, she was only basically known for the crush and the Aerosmith videos, but still, right. 
There was a buzz. I know I've mentioned it often on the show, and uh, there was a Rolling Stone article that came out about her. Right, I think it was for Clueless, and she was the cover. And then there's a picture of her in that Rolling Stone article that will forever be in my mind, uh, as it was many times uh, in those mid '90s. Glenn likes and to Glenn likes to just hold on to those things for when he needs them later on. <laughs> so uh, Stacy Dash, which I mean. She's still being talked about, better or worse. She's yeah, still. She took a weird turn. She took a very. Who saw that coming? But, <laughs> Not I. Uh, Brittany Murphy, who uh, before her, one of the weirder deaths in Hollywood uh, between her and her husband, had a very you know decent career going. Uh, Paul Rudd, unknown at the time, uh, discovered. Yeah. Yeah, discovered Paul Rudd. Donald Faison. Still became, you know, very popular, still mentioned within the side guys. Breck and Meyer we'll talk about more later. But and he a lot of, even just the characters, Jeremy Tisco, uh, who had many years of success on different uh procedural dramas on television. Yeah, I mean, and and a really a really great supporting role on Six Feet Under. Yes, yes. I always forget that. Uh Dan, I know I never pronounced this man's name right. Uh but Hadiah. Hadaya from Cheers fame and many other shows, not just Cheers, but uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. As you mentioned, Wallace Shawn, you can just go through up to down and she found people who just randomly were, she was able to put together in a cast, but such a great cast and who all found stardom in some way or other later on. And that's a true testament to what you can see in an actor and the performance she can bring out of them as a lot of these people probably would not still have a career if it weren't for this movie. Yeah, uh, a, a feat she accomplished in Fast Times and then repeated in um, in Clueless. I, a quick word on Dan Hedaya. I think Dan Hedaya, other than Amy Hackerling, is the most direct link to the decade before for Clueless. Because uh, I've always thought that Cheryl's dad, Mel, feels to me like if Nick Tortelli on Cheers made a bunch of money, this is this is who he becomes. Like... Um, <laughs> I totally could see that. And, uh, of course, although she didn't discover, she does throw uh, something, a little bit of a bone to 80s fans with uh, Julie Brown uh, from Earth Girls Are Easy and Shakes the Clown, I think, and many others. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this movie just – it, but it also – for better or worse, as much Fast Times did as well, changed the behavior of especially girls of a certain age of that time period. But it it almost, it wasn't necessarily Valley Girl that she brought back. It was just like almost, I don't know, Beverly Hills Girl isn't a thing, but it, people changed their, I know my sister did. My sister's behavior completely changed after watching this. And although it was really annoying to me at the time, that's quite a feat twice to change the whole generation's behavior and how they, how they act and what they will do. Yeah, Clueless somehow managed to be uh, somehow managed to sort of lead with girlishness. There's no question about that. And yet the main character doesn't have to renounce it to sort of change. Um uh, she, and she doesn't. It's not seen as a thing. It's not seen as a thing as a bad thing. You're supposed to mature and get over in order to grow up. Because fundamentally, Clueless is a is a coming of age movie, um, maybe a coming of age, half coming of age, half romantic comedy. Um, but the 
I, that's something I've always appreciated about that. Um, I, and I think with, you know, it was, I think it was a real high point for teen girls in movies and without Clueless, we, there's no Legally Blonde, there's no Juno, there's no, uh, there's no Edge of 17, there's no all of the great sort of teen, f- there's probably no election, which is essentially a dark Clueless. Um, there's, uh, there's no there's a whole there's a whole um cast of great teen female protagonists to come that clueless kind of opens the door for yeah i completely agree uh michael does your uh your wife have any comments on clueless that you'd like to tell us is your third child going to be share you never know we'll see or Elton. Yeah. <laughs> or Elton. <laughs> I mean, you have a Veda, which is adorable and from my girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can have a Warren. I don't see why you can't have a, can't have a shit. But yeah, I mean, uh, back, back to the way girls were talking, I definitely do remember that from the time period. It definitely entered their, their vocabulary. I guess with Fast Times, the girls were talking that way. And then, uh, or uh, the what's before Fast Times, the... The Nick Cage one. The Nick Cage one. Sorry. Yeah, Valley Girl. Valley, Girl's the Valley Girl. After Fast yeah, Times. Valley Girl, and then yeah. Fast Times. Like it felt like that was infiltrating, especially the middle of America. Like this is how people are going to talk. And then later on was like, like Bill and Ted, and Wayne and Garth, and then with Ninja Turtles. Even like this is how people started. Like it, I don't know, it degraded the way people should be and are talking. But it did happen. And then again here with Clueless. Yeah. Uh, amazing that, that someone, the Ninja Turtles, which was born in Northampton, Massachusetts, that someone decided that the Ninja Turtles should talk like 60s surfers from Southern California. <laughs> yeah. uh, so do we all agree that this movie not only holds up, but is probably one of the fine examples of 80s movies that were made in the 90s? Yeah, and I think consequently is one of, is one of the 90s' great movies. By the person who basically started the '80s movie revolution, so it only makes sense. Yeah, uh, Amy Heckerling could do nothing else with her career, and 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 she could, and and, and she would be legendary because of just that. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to move on. Since we're in LA, we might as well go to a movie with a very similar theme: uh, "Boys in the Hood." <laughs> Uh, I feel Clueless and Boys of the Hood are kind of companion pieces. Am I off on that? Anyone else do that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, so Boys of the Hood takes place in Crenshaw, uh, uh, the, the street of Los Angeles, California. Uh, one of the first real movies, I'll say, of the 90s. Uh, which the nineties had a lot of movies that were pretty real, but this one I think really sparked it off. Uh, Michael, I'll start with you. What's the first time you remember hearing about boys in the hood? All I knew was, was about how real the real was Glenn. <laughs> uh, just, just seeing previews on HBO. I remember seeing it a few times on HBO, especially like NWA was infiltrating the middle of America and it just felt like rap is the coolest thing in the world. And this is rap's movie. I remember the opening weekend, uh, and as you said, we were in the middle of America, uh, so that there being stories on the news like about movie theaters, like gang wars, like sparking because different gangs went to see this movie, and you know rival gangs in the same theater, and I just remember like 
the typical middle America response is, well, you make a gang movie, you're going to get gangs. Uh, and so it was probably a good three or four years after it came out that I first saw it. Kevin, when did you first experience Boys in the Hood? I, I saw it in the theater. Uh, you know, I, Boys in the Hood came along. I mean, Boys in the Hood was the summer of 91. So it, it, it didn't track perfectly with NWA because I believe that Straight Outta Compton was Straight Outta Compton was spring of 89. Um, so uh, and, and, and Do the Right Thing was summer of 89, which which had sort of which had sort of opened the door to major studios um, looking at the at the screenplays of young black filmmakers. Um, the uh in a way they hadn't been at that time. Um, but I, I remembered seeing an ad for, I remembered seeing an ad for it on television and thinking, you know, and I had, and I, I was working in Los Angeles that summer. So I, I don't, I think I saw it when I got back home to Michigan, but I remembered thinking, I, 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 I remember thinking that summer because I was going to be in Los Angeles and because, you know, uh, because, Young people and, and, and young people and hip hop culture were things that I was interested in at the time and still am. I remember thinking, yeah, this is a movie that I need to see. And I think I, I think I, I got home to Michigan in in you know in mid August and it was still playing at the Showcase Cinemas at Ann Arbor, which is where I ended up seeing it. Yeah, to get the timeline. So yeah, Straight Outta Compton uh, was eighty eighty eight or late eighty eight, early eighty nine. Uh, when this movie was filmed, this was uh, as Ice Cube was attempting to leave that group. The group was basically at this point disbanded, but in the, mm-hmm. we didn't know that in the public because Dr. Dre the next year uh, came out with The Chronic in the summer mm-hmm. of 92. And that was kind of the final, okay, NWA is done. Uh, mm-hmm. There wasn't obviously the press that we we have now uh, to get us these leaks and know, oh my God, NWA is done. But yeah, this definitely, and you mentioned Do the Right Thing. This movie definitely, I think, followed in the footsteps of that movie, but it told a completely different story. Uh, there's a great documentary on Netflix. I'll have to get the name of it here. And we may have talked about it before on the show. Uh, I think we might have, uh, where they kind of trace the history of rap uh, and they end right around the time Boys in the Hood came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of, although NWA was the emergence of the West Coast rap and the West Coast kind of lifestyle, this was really the first uh thing that put it in front of the masses outside of the uh, NWA music. This was, you know, hey, this is what we're living with, you know, every day. And this is just a typical story that we experience. Uh, how was it received your memory within the middle America? You said you saw it in Michigan for the first time. I, that's where you saw it. How do you remember it being perceived? I, you know, I, I, I've always... Michael earlier talked about how how clueless kind of kind of leads with its girlishness, and I and I think there's totally something to that. Um, I've always been I've always been the kind of person who I'm like, uh, you tell me a movie's not for me, well I'm gonna go I, I'm just not gonna I, I'm gonna go find a second opinion and see if that's actually true or not. Um, I. I remember, like, I grew up. I grew up in Ann Arbor, which is a college town, a university town, and a pretentious town where people pride themselves on how enlightened they were. So all of my African American friends went to see this movie, and of course, my friends went to see it because we thought African American pop culture was the shit. You like so, so right. that's why that's why we were there. And then and then the fact that it was sort of universally critically acclaimed, all of a sudden you had like our parents going to see it because it was winning awards at film festivals and because that because that 
you know, flash forward six months, it gets it gets a you know a handful of Oscar nominations, and uh, and now of course you know Boys in the Hood is is in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. Um, but I remember, I, I remember thinking that, like, I remember thinking that the culture that Boys in the Hood was about, even though all I had to go on was the commercial, uh, was was cool and and was interesting. So that that that's why I I was sort of first in line, and I was and and I was aware that while I was at the movie theater, it would be it would be mostly black kids, and then it would be white kids like me who thought what black kids were into was cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. When when I was in I, high school, I first met yeah. Glenn. He was really into jerseys. He was known to me as the Jersey guy. He <laughs> just, just he wore he wore Air Jordans and he wore a collection of NBA jerseys. Like I, to me, it felt like you had fifty jerseys. I have more. Yeah. Well, he I, he definitely thought yeah. black culture was cool. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, growing up, and I know off-air, Kevin, you and I kind of set the scene of where we live and what we grew up in, but I definitely was one of the, uh, I definitely incorporated some of uh, black culture into my everyday life and African-American culture, and I definitely was get, got weird looks uh, in the hallway by people like Michael, who <laughs> looked at me like, what is this guy you don't, he's doing? You don't look like the rest of the white kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I wasn't over the top. It just I, I saw a style that I liked, and I saw you know I wasn't you know trying to go out and you know be like I was a boy in the hood, but I saw a style I liked, and I liked the music, and for whatever reason, that's what really you know I don't want to say spoke to me because, but it's really what like I enjoyed, and so. I definitely, I definitely wanted to see this movie. I think it was a. I think it, I had to wait to HBO. My parents definitely were not be taking me to see this movie, mm. so I think I also found it on HBO. Like I remember being very excited to see it for the first time, uh, and then this movie kind of, for better or worse, spawned other movies uh, in a similar vein. Some of them not great, uh, and some of them decent. Well, there's, uh, there's Menace to Society. You want to buy which this? Which is a great movie. You want to buy this cheeseburger? Yes. Um, uh, po- poetic justice, and then that's what I was going to say. Don't be a mess. Yeah, South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. Yeah, Those, what what John yeah. Singleton did, did immediately after Boys in the Hood. Um, Do you know and, how bad I wanted poetic justice to be great? I oh, wanted me too. to be great so bad. And it yeah. Was, I think he kind of righted himself with higher learning, which is which was the, yes. his third movie. It's 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 a little hysterical in places, but he gets he gets really good actors in higher learning, and he deals with a lot of important issues. I, I think I think I, it was very clear that when Poetic Justice came out, it was very clear that John Singleton was still a young filmmaker and had not really found his footing yet. Um, and uh, and I I think I think he 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 sort of you know. Correct. He sort of pulled on the sail and corrected and corrected that. Uh, but yeah, I, I really wish like Poetic Justice had been his his fourth or fifth movie instead of his second. Um, yeah, when you mentioned higher learning, uh, there was a summer where I hung out with this guy. I don't think I was really much of his friend. I he just we were the only two like who listened to rap music and we could get tolerate each other. And we go to his older brother's apartment. I was still in high school and they watched higher learning almost every day. And it just became like one of my favorite movies at that time. I have not revisited it in a long time, but the ice cube line, uh, when he's asked, 
can I see your ID? He's let me see your ID to this day. Like anytime yeah. <laughs> someone asks for an ID, that's the line that goes through my head. Like that sticks with me. But I agree. I wish Poetic Justice would have been farther down the line. I think that could have been a much better movie. And I wanted, as like a Tupac fan, and that was before like he became infamous. You know, yeah. that was when he was still releasing uh, his earlier work. I wanted that movie to be so good. And I, unfortunately, it's on level in a different way with his uh, cinema debut, which is uh, Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, a co- just a couple of quick things about Boys in the Hood, which I think I think connect it um, in a big way to uh, the decade before. Uh, the original title of the screenplay when when John Singleton was still at USC was Summer of 84. So he always conceived it as a coming of age movie, which is what I which is really what I think it is. I think I think we're inclined to think that it's a crime movie or it's an African American movie. It's really a movie about growing up, um emphasis on the boys rather than the hood. Um and um and I think you know, to look at it as a movie that really couldn't have existed without the uh, hip hop movies that came before. It, it really couldn't have existed without Wild Style and Crush Groove and Beat Street and most notably House Party. Um, all movies that folk that put sort of hip hop culture and and black young people at the center, but also made it permissible uh, or commonplace, I should say, for a musician to become an actor without really a break in stride. Um, I, I think it was it, it was it was most obviously house party, but really really wild really wild style and Beat Street and Crush Groove that kind of set the template for that, and made it pretty easy for for John Singleton to conceive of the role of Doughboy, which he did for Ice Cube, who at the time wasn't an actor, what was a was a musician. Um, the the ease of which he transitions from one to the next is a is a model that had been had been set in the hip hop movies the decade before. Uh, I agree, Michael. Did you have anything you wanted to wrap up, uh, Boys in the Hood, with before we move on? Well, I mean, it, def- it definitely feels like that the uh, the funding would not have been there, like if those movies did not come ahead of time. Especially like, hey, I'm going to get this rapper to be in this movie, and like, there's no way anyone would have taken him seriously or given him a meeting if those other movies, those '80s movies, those goofy '80s movies, especially. I think even House Party too. Like, oh, it's, I got this movie. Oh, is it like House Party? Is it like okay? Well, yeah. Is it like House Party too? Like, no, not really. <laughs> it's got it's got one of those rappers yeah. in it though, right? Okay, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Is it more House Party 3? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah. Michael, I, I don't want to st- before we move on, you did mention a movie. I think I was a big fan of this movie when uh, we first started hanging out in time people's career. I lost you. I lost you. I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, go start over from where you were at. Sorry, I lost. Oh, okay, you. sorry, no problem. Uh, Michael, you mentioned a movie uh, that I believe I was listening to right when we first, or I was watching right when we first started hanging out, and I really uh, enjoyed "Dopey Menace to South Central while drinking your juice. Oh in the hood. shoot, man! <laughs> <laughs> I thought like, I, I really liked that movie. I thought you were yeah, gonna say. Time. I thought I you were gonna say Friday. Oh, well, no, I, I think everyone loved Friday. I mean, mm. Friday, I think everyone loved Friday. If I if I met a person who didn't like Friday but had watched it, I would want an essay of why they didn't like Friday. Yeah, I, I mean, let's, Friday is, Friday is 
clerks in South Central Los Angeles. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like it's basically like it's basically a movie about a shitty day, like um, the same way clerks. <laughs> You need to write that down, Kevin, and use that because uh, that is one of the best lines I've ever heard to describe a movie because it's so true. Yeah, I, and I think I think it comes from. I mean, those aren't the only two examples, but they're but they're movies about like a sort of sheepish main character having a lousy day. Like, I, I mean, I guess After Hours is kind of one of the early examples of that, even though that's that's a kind of surreal, weird example of it. But um, uh, but I, I I don't know. I that's a category that I really enjoy. So I have a shirt buried somewhere in my hundreds of T-shirts uh, from Clerks that says, I'm not even supposed to be here today. The fact mm-hmm. that I have never seen a shirt that says you got fired on your day off, uh, it, it's, it offends me now. I think that this <laughs> needs to be looked into because that is a shirt that should be made. And you're right. They are so similar in movies and everyone should love Friday. But – I, for whatever reason, during like the three months, I love Don't Be a Menace to South Central LA while drinking your juice in the hood. And I don't know if I'd ever watched it since. I'm not sure I would ever enjoy it again. But it, there was like a magical time where that movie just cracked me up every time. It, it did come before Scary Movie, didn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It came before Scary Movie by a few years because it was yeah. 96, 97. That's off the top of my head, but I, I'm just trying to think of the time period I was watching. It had to be 97. It is kind of where the Wayans got the idea for the satirical genre franchise, isn't it? That, that of course, made them made them untold millions of dollars. <laughs> right. <laughs> Justifiably or not, we don't know. But yeah. yes. Yeah, that was, I think, their first type of those movies. And I don't know why. I just I loved it. The the fun like the first few times the fun was trying to figure out what movie they were referencing. Yeah. Well, I was a lost teenager. I was. Yeah. I was. I was, I was a big fan of I'm gonna get you sucker, and then don't be a menace to South. Well, the Juice in the Hood, and then the first scary movie. I felt like all, those three were probably my favorite Wayne's Brothers movies, but well, the the other ones are just feel very subpar. But it felt like the effort was there, and I I loved that movie. I got the poster. I, it's blue. I, it's the box, the the VHS box cover. It's just blue on the background, and he's the main character or the secondary character. He's holding Super Soaker, right? Super Soaker, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have that poster somewhere too. Actually, now that you say that, uh, and I, yeah. I haven't seen. I don't, I'm going to get you, sucker. But it, it is a it's a send up of 70s black exploitation movies. Yeah, it's right? more 70s stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is I think is hilarious because you know like like it, it was clear that movie was like. The Wayans didn't give a heck if anybody got the joke except them and their three friends or their 12 friends or whoever. But like, yeah, it was all it was all sort of riffing on something from my understanding is it was all riffing on something from their childhood. Uh, and they had and they really had no wider audience. They didn't they didn't really care if if, if anybody got it other than them. Um. So here, as we're, uh, we move on first, Kevin, uh, you've yep. been on our show a few times now. And so, and we talked a little before we started recording, uh, you're kind of in between, uh, traveling right now in between your tours. Uh, how's everything going with the book? It's going great. You know, the, 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 the number of people, I, I mean, of course you write a book called Brat Pack America, a love letter to eighties teen movies. You've sort of said pretty loudly who your, who your people are. And, um, and it's been great, you know, meeting them in places all over the country and corresponding with them online and, and seeing what, 
it just tells me how great these movies are, given how many different kinds of relationships people have had with them. You know, I met I, I met I met a group of guys who love Dirty Dancing because they say it's a great vintage car movie, um, which you know was if that's a take on it I'd never heard before. I'm like, hey, good for you, and like. Um, I've met people who like who like got into got into fencing because of the Princess Bride, and you know, and um, and I, I just it's, it's also really neat to talk to kids, you know, to talk to people that are that are seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty about about um, this time in history and the movies from this time in history. I, I've met more than a few. Um, uh, men and young men and women who are 19 and 20 who just think they were born in the wrong decade, who think like, who like, why couldn't I have been, you know, why couldn't I have been born in the eighties and, you know, and, and grown up in a hydrofoil shirt. Um, (laughs) so it's, it's really been fun. Like, I, I feel like I could continue on doing what I'm doing forever. Um, I'll, I'll probably, you know, I'll probably want to write something else at some point. Um, but it's been really great to, um, it's, it, and it continues to be great just getting to know, getting to know people and, and, and talking about their love and their relationship with eighties teen movies. Um, it, it's really the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, and you are a great Twitter follow, as I've said before at Ouija, W E E G E E, uh, on Twitter and Kevin com for all of your, uh, upcoming dates. Uh, you said you had some in the Midwest Where are you going to be coming up here in the Midwest? I'm, I've got something in Ann Arbor, my hometown. And, um, I, I'm looking to do, I'm looking to possibly do something in, uh, again in North Northbrook, Northbrook, Illinois. I did something oh. earlier this year at the Northbrook Public Library, which was John Hughes's public library. So um, they and I have had a have had a really good relationship, and and I'm probably going to be doing something else there. Well, when you do that, please reach out to us. We'd love to come up there and support you. Uh, I will be. I I don't know if we've said this on the show, Michael, but I'm going to be at the final weekend of the Max Pop Up Restaurant in Chicago. Uh, coming up the last weekend in May will be the final days that they they transformed a restaurant to look exactly like the Max from Saved by the Bell, <laughs> and uh, was lucky enough to be a part of that. So very much looking forward to that the final weekend uh, where I can ultimately geek out with my Saved by the Bell fandom. Uh, it's a dream come true, basically. Uh, but we will continue uh, as we go through these. And so we have a couple left that we wanted to discuss that we had talked about. Uh, and since we're still in the Los Angeles area, I think it's a good time to discuss a movie that we have actually previously also reviewed. Uh, it was episode 41, if you want to go back in the archives. Can't hardly wait. So we did this the week after we did Empire Records, uh, all those years ago, back in November of 2010. Uh, I remember when Can't Hardly Wait came out, and Michael, I don't know if you went with me to see it in the theater. I know JS was there, and I was so excited because this movie was so blatantly advertising their 80s-ness in the trailers that, to me, it was a dream. It was like, this is what I've been waiting for for so many years, and I just absolutely could not wait to see it. Uh, Michael, did do you remember? Did you see it in the theaters with it, me, or did you? It, it was a magical time for me as well, Glenn. We did see it together. We went. I remember going okay. to McDonald's directly afterwards. Um, <laughs> uh, there is a main character. We could talk about him later. That uh, directly references you and your lifestyle. I do remember getting up, like standing up after the credits of that movie, and just thinking this was amazing. This movie was meant for me. It, fe- it feels like that Empire Records was that for my wife, or you know, or 
or clueless was that for my wife but for me it was like can't hardly wait was that movie for me like it, i remember later like a year later two years later when american pie came out i'm like well it's no can't hardly wait can't hardly wait i mean that's it was it was just made for me and i remember you bought you're like i'm buying the soundtrack i'm like well i'm stealing that soundtrack <laughs> is that where it's at I, mean, I might have it i don't know no my wife has it i'm sure that was my wife don't worry about it <laughs> uh yeah oh we saw American Pie in Denver, didn't we? On one of our one of those, countries. yeah. I just remember like getting like watching it and being like, "That's no, can't hardly wait." <laughs> yet, yet it's a it, uh, yet it's a juggernaut, a billion dollar industry. <laughs> uh, Kevin, when did you first? When did Can't Hardly Wait first come on your radar? I would assume fairly soon because they also had a pretty big advertising uh, push. Yeah, I saw it. I saw a commercial for it when I was in 1998. I was in graduate school in Austin, Texas, and so I I remember seeing it in the theater some Friday night when I was sick of you know working in the library, um, and I I saw it because I love you know I love uh, movies that center around the big party. And yes. uh, and what I didn't realize and, and and what I didn't realize at the time was a that the title comes from a replacement song because I at the time didn't know anything about the replacements. Um, and B, uh, at the time, didn't know that Can't Hardly Wait was going to be what I what I referred to as a yearbook movie, i.e. a movie with a lot of people who were who were in it together before they were famous and later became famous. Uh, you know, American Graffiti being an early example of that, and then Fast Times, and then Dazed and Confused, and then Can't Hardly Wait kind of carrying the ball from there. Um, and, and not just and not just you know sort of the people who appear on the poster you know uh, Brecklin Mayer has a small role and can't hardly wait Donald Fiason has a small role um, there's uh, Freddie Rodriguez before he became the mortician on six feet under um, on six feet under is in can't hardly wait and Sean Patrick Thomas before he you know was the romantic lead in let's say the last dance is you know has a has a small part in can't hardly and, wait. and the girl from the, six feet under too the redheaded girl yeah Lauren Ambrose uh, is also is also in can't hardly wait uh, those are I mean those are really my favorite things about that movie and the fact that it's just it's just so completely watchable you know it it has a zillion characters and and it has a manic sense of energy there's a ton of stuff going on and yet it just it 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 keeps it all together um and and moves with such a grace and a smoothness um i just it's one of those movies where you start me at you know any minute minute 11 or minute 100 and 106 I'm, i'm i'm on board until it's over yeah, so with Can't Hardly Wait, I believe, wasn't there, I think they're opening or, I don't know, maybe it was the end credit sequence. They actually used the yearbook uh, to yeah. go through to do the cast, so that's perfect. Uh, mm. The movie starred uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, we had a friend in high school who was obsessed with her for her singing career. Mm, yeah. And would go out and buy all of her CDs. Do you remember that, Michael? That was, at best, at best, very uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. You'd go to his uh, house or his apartment where he was living, and he would just be playing Jennifer Love Hewitt so, like CDs. Like it was the most natural thing to do in 1998 was to listen to Jennifer Love Hewitt CDs. It was not. It was not. <laughs> well, it kind of felt like kind of felt like Michael Rappaport and Beautiful Girls when he was obsessed with the models. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do remember I, that. I, I cite that monologue in my head every day. <laughs> Uh, so as you said, this was one of those classic, uh, big party movies. 
Uh, as we're recording this, uh, our super fan uh, we mentioned earlier, Josh S, is actually watching Say Anything for the first time, which was not a big party movie, just had a uh, movie in the middle uh, or a party in the middle there. But yeah. this movie, the whole feature was the party. Uh, we've mentioned House Party earlier. What other great movies were the was the were the whole feature is the party? Uh, the well, Dazed and Confused definitely. Um, it kind of the whole thing kind of leads up to that, and that was a few years before Can't Hardly Wait. Immediately after Can't Hardly Wait was a so-so movie called Two Hundred Cigarettes, oh, which yeah. uh, which is all about New Year's Eve. Um, and a bunch of characters that all converge upon a New Year's Eve party. Um, way back in 1978, there was a movie called Thank God It's Friday, which is essentially Can't Hardly Wait with adults at, where the house party is a discotheque. Um, and uh, it, it's not a great movie, but if you were into those like random people out at night in Los Angeles movies, you know, essentially what Midnight Madness was two years later, um, then it's it's probably worth seeing once just for that. Uh, this movie also uh, had the uh, a, a background character that was a background character in many movies of its time. Uh, mm. In similar movies, and I'm, I'm speaking of Chris Owen. Oh yes, uh, yes. <laughs> the ginger-haired fella who's uh, he played a klepto in this movie. He was also in American Pie. Yeah, the uh, Shermanator in American Pie. <laughs> yeah, this guy was just all of these movies. And this this movie in, partic- in particular had so many background characters, so many people who you're like, oh, I know that person. Uh, Jamie Presley, Jamie Lee Presley. Uh, who was a crush of mine for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, I just had a movie. Oh, she was in nine other teen movie as well. I think I, mean, I could be yes. wrong on that. Yes. Uh, which is another great and horrible, uh, take on eighties movies. Yeah. But yeah, this movie just had so many people in the background. Uh, what are some of the other characters I might be forgetting? Does anyone have any off the top of their heads? Yeah, I mean Melissa Joan Hart plays the plays the uh, yes. sort of uptight girl who wants everybody to sign her yearbook. There was an actor named there. There's an actor in one scene na- whose whose first name is very long. It's like Vachelius something. Um, he's the guy who who runs into Ethan Emery and he's holding a, a handful of spray paint and he says, "Hey, Amanda's here. Time to get freaky." Um, uh, it's a very funny one scene thing. He would later be seen as, as, um, as the president's son on 24, um, who, uh, who gets in all sorts of trouble and is, 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 you know, a crucial plot point in about half the episodes of the first season of 24. That's uh, Vesalius Shannon. Uh, yeah, yes. his, his, uh, role in the movie was, uh, ready whip kid. Like, yeah, he's a kid holding 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 a, a giant handful of Ready Whip cans. Um, <laughs> he's in there, and uh, we already talked about we already talked about Sean um, Sean Michael Thomas and Freddie Rodriguez. Um, Jenna Elfman has a cameo. Yes, um, I love Jenna Elfman. Uh, yeah. Selma Blair. Selma Blair is in this movie as well. Yeah, for uh, a minute or two. Yeah, and the, yeah. The, the, the screen is just crawling with 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 young actors from that time. Um, many of whom, many of whom went on to do, uh, uh bigger and better things, but it, it's all, it's really neat to see them all, um, at the same party. At the time I was watching it, uh, with JS and, and Lawrence Glenn at the theater, uh, the introduction of Kenny Fisher played by Seth Green in his SUV, mm-hmm. rocking his 
uh, '90s urban <laughs> urban lifestyle as a white white kid. Yeah, and <laughs> like, we both stood up and laughed right in our friend Lawrence's face. And I believe I believe that Kenny's friend, the one who wore the sun visor upside down, yes. Um, I believe that actor was a, Billy Jacoby, I think was his name. Um, but he was he was someone who, as a young person, was in a uh, I, I think he might have been in Iron Eagle as a young person playing Jason Gedrick's younger brother. Um, we are we are reviewing Iron Eagle this weekend. So, we yeah, were- oh God, that's such a yeah, it's such a uh, I, that's one of my favorite bad movies from that time. Um I th- oh Bobby Jacoby yes uh, who who now apparently goes by by Robert Jane and I believe was in Iron Eagle. Hang on, um, uh, yeah, I, homeboy number um, two. He, yeah, homeboy number two was uh, was uh, no, he was not in Iron Eagle, but he, he was, was in, a in bunch Tremors. Of- he yeah. was in Tremors, and he was in a bunch of TV from that time, and he was on Party of Five a little bit later, and um, and played Jeff on Boy Meets World. Uh, oh, and, and yeah, he was he was definitely around. He was on that show Sliders, which came immediately after, um, immediately and after Can't Hardly Wait. Please don't forget Jake and the Fat Man. We always have yeah. to make Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> yeah, I mean he. Yeah, there's the the, the movie is just crawling with um, with. Uh, Young actors who um, who would go on to who were at the very beginning of their career, and it's just it's just you know those things are a coincidence. You know nobody casts a movie so perfectly that that everybody in it goes on to do great things afterwards. But um, he but I think three, I, I think it's it's a neat coincidence. Three episode run on Small Wonder. I mean, you don't get mm-hmm. better in the eighties for me than that. No, uh, no, yeah, but. Yeah, uh, Michael, you're an asshole for saying that. <laughs> I did. I had no idea where Michael was going to go with that, and yet uh, I can see the Seth Green thing. I, I get it. I get it. He Bye. drove I an like- SUV, very similar to the kind of vehicle that Lawrence was driving at the exact same time. Yes, I drove an SUV and I bumped rap music, but I did not. I was not a Kenny. Uh, Ooh, Kenny Fisher. Yeah, and, and I can prove that because you were at the movie theater with me and my girlfriend. My girlfriend. Okay, Anywho. I believe you. Whatever. Uh, yeah, so as we said, this is one of those movies where you just it, you just throw a dart and on the screen and that person went on. Uh, my favorite part as we wind down this movie is the names that the people got in, in their casting. Uh, and I'm talking like from the bigger characters on down, no one really got, except for like the top five or six, an actual name. Uh, we have exchange student, jock one, jock two, mm-hmm. jock three, X-File one, X-File two, real homeboy, homeboy one, homeboy two. It just goes down. Yeah. We have down the list. So like even a lot of the bigger or people with bigger roles, uh, everyone just got kind of their their role was basically what exactly what they did. Keep it simple. That's what you got to do. Well, even Keep like, even when they yeah. did the, the bio stuff from the, the yearbook, it felt like that they were just making people caricatures, which I was totally fine with. It kept it simple, especially when a group of, I mean, there's 50 people in this movie, so you got to keep it simple. And, and the strength of the cast is that everybody is that pretty much at least all of the leads kind of transcend the box that the movie has deliberately put them in. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I give the movie a lot of credit for that. 
Uh, so as we move on to our final movie we're going to discuss today, this is a movie that holds such a special place in my heart. Uh, it's a movie that I have been in love with since the first time I saw it. Uh, it was not in the theaters. It must have been on uh, HBO or a channel of that nature. Uh, it is Angus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really like uh, a, a great like a great like video store movie like like that's if if the movie has fans yes. that's that's where they discovered it. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it had much of a box office, although it does have some bigger you know adult stars. Uh, Michael, when's the first time you became aware of Angus? One of my friends had the soundtrack to Angus and had all the coolest songs from that era. <laughs> Angus had a really solid soundtrack. It really did uh, for the time. Green Day, I think, was. Well, didn't it have like a big snot bubble? I think that was the original box. It was like a giant snot bubble. I think it was the the Green Day song on Angus, which I believe was called Jar, um, was was sort of the, the the holdover that Green Day fans got between their first and second album. Like I, I I think I think that was that was what the band sort of threw at people between when um, uh, after you know Dookie had come out and before Nimrod had. Unless you wanted to pay uh, expensive prices to buy the Japanese import with four songs. May have made that mistake once. <laughs> um, I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing we we put them in this order because um, Chris Owen, who was the Shermanator in American Pie and the Kleptomaniac in Can't Hardly Wait, um, has probably his biggest role as Angus's best friend, Troy. Uh, uh, you know, it's all a happy coincidence, but I'm glad that you connected the dots of my randomness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you know, and 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 three years before he would play Dawson Leary, uh, James Vanderbeek as the villain on uh, in 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 Angus. I think that was his first role. I believe you are correct. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are so many. So this movie is to me, it's quintessentially an '80s movie, like to its core. You have the kid who's out of place, and in this case, they took. A kid. They made the the kid who's out of place, Angus. Not only is he smart, which is a, usually a characteristic, but he also is a kind of an athlete. I mean, he's a football player and a pretty good one, as they discuss throughout the movie. Even though he's not doesn't have a typical athletic build. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of some. That was something that normally they didn't do in these types of movies. Uh, but they kind of gave him both of those uh, roles and yet still made him the outsider. Uh, you mentioned some of the people also, Kevin Conley from entourage fame, mm-hmm. uh, one of the key bad guys here, but this is the, all the basics of an eighties movie. You have the high school, you have a big dance, you have the outsider, the freak, if you will. And yet it has a heart and I don't know where that heart came from or what makes this movie more heartfelt than others. But this movie at its core is just like, it feels so good. And yet there's sad moments. There's happy. Like it's a range of emotions for me. I don't know why I connected so much with this movie, but I loved it. It's an incredibly sweet movie. And, and I think, I think the way it feels 
like a 80s movie, but is most definitely a 90s movie, is 80s movies, you know, given the conservative political climate of the time, were often about, often starred rebellious people, but they were people who always came around to seeing, they never questioned the system. You know, the system was always was always fundamentally in place. You know, uh, Samantha Baker in Sixteen Candles wants to be a popular kid and ends up at the end, you know, kissing a popular kid, but it never questions whether the system of popular kids and unpopular kids is right or wrong. Um, we'd have to wait for the 90s for that to happen, um, where, you know, 80s movie stars, 80s action movies star cops and 90s action movies star and uh, 90s action movies are like The Fugitive, where uh, where the police are part of the problem. The system is part of the problem. Uh, Angus, to me, feels like that. It's a movie where the main character wants to be wants to fit in more, and then realizes in the end the whole idea of fitting in is wrong. Um, that uh, the main character and, and, and voiced through his his grandfather, played by uh, played by George C. Scott. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, had it right all along, um, and that the that the system isn't one you actually want to uh, participate in. Uh, the only other thing I'll the only other thing I'll say about this movie, which I which just makes me love it all the more, is I feel like you can always tell one of the marks of quality of a teen movie is how good are the roles for adults, because a, a, a teen movie has no real investment in make in, in, in casting good adults, which are largely there as a window dressing. But what separates a great teen movie like Angus from its from its brethren are, are the fact that um, the grandfather are, are the fact that there's three legendary actors in this movie. The grandfather's played by George C. Scott, and Kathy Bates has a significant role in this movie. Rita Moreno has a significant role in this movie. Uh, Rita Moreno, George C. Scott, Kathy Bates—they all got better things to do than than be <laughs> in a than be in a a, a a teen movie about a about a you know about a kid that doesn't fit in, and yet the movie spoke to them, and hence their presence makes it better. Uh, and I th- I feel like that's a a rule of thumb you can apply to most teen movies, which is you know to circle back to the thing we said about Amy Hackerling a moment ago. The biggest, the biggest character, and to me, the thing that sticks out to me was definitely George C. Scott because it felt like he definitely he lived life. He is giving his grandson this advice, like he knows, he knows what he's gonna, he knows what his grandson's gonna do before he actually does it, and it just feels like this profit that was put into this movie was. I mean, sometimes you're just like, I'm not gonna listen to my parents, but other times it's like. They know what's best. I, I don't know. And it just was nice to have, like, especially, like, a, a grandpa character, just to have somebody on your side, especially when you're, like, that teenager and you think you're out there by yourself and there's nobody on your side. It's just the dynamic t- between, you know, Angus and grandpa was, I mean, that's what I take away from this movie. Yeah, I don't think we have we have the, the, the George Siegel as the grandfather and the Goldbergs without that dynamic in Angus, oh. I think. Um, I, I mean, I, Adam F. Goldberg, the showrunner might argue with me, but I feel like, I feel like one is a direct descendant of the other. Uh, I'm glad you put the F in there because we don't want the other Adam Goldberg thinking that we're discussing. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of my favorite things about this movie was how the character or how the actor who played Angus, Charlie Talbert was discovered. Uh, and it's cause it's kind of local to, uh, me and Michael he was eating at the Unoasis uh, Wendy's. Uh, growing up around the Chicagoland area, uh, they're not really there anymore. But over the interstate, you could stop and you would 
there'd be restaurants where it was literally built over the lanes on the interstate. I don't know. I'm sure those are other places. Like as you go, as you go up to Wisconsin. Yes. As you go up to Wisconsin, uh, 1994, there also used to be one in I-80. He actually was eating at the one you just referenced, Michael, on on the way to Wisconsin. And uh, the service was bad. And he was making fun of the service and the guy in line who was waiting behind him, who happened to be the director of Angus, who asked him then to audition. So that's one of those roles. This kid had no ambition to act. He was just a kid from Kenosha, Wisconsin. And just happened to be a smart ass and was a smart ass to the right guy. Uh, so Patrick Reed Johnson, who directed it, said, why don't you audition for my movie if you think you're so funny? And Angus was born. Uh, and a great I think story. That, yeah. And I think that that really you can now knowing that and if you think back or if you watch it, knowing that a lot of the Angus character is realness. Like you see that some of the pain that he goes through. And I almost think that some of that. It, for a kid that young, even if they were a trained actor, you you don't really you can't show that unless you've experienced it. And I don't know. To me, it just it adds a whole new level when you're watching the movie. Just to know this kid was not an actor, was not trained. This was just his first time. He was eating at a Wendy's, and now he's the star of this movie, uh, which was uh, until very recently very difficult to locate uh, on DVD. They had not released a a DVD of it until within the last few years. So you can now get it on DVD. Uh, I love it. God. Yeah. Anytime it's on TV, it's one of those movies I will stop and just watch it uh, and just deal with the commercials because I love it so much. Uh, Any other comments on uh, Angus or any of these movies that we've discussed or just 90s or 80s movies made in the 90s in general? As far as Angus goes, it felt like. Uh, they didn't use a Nickelodeon kid. They didn't use a um, yeah. Walt Disney kid. And it felt like this, it adds a lot more to it. He feels a lot more genuine, at least. I mean, even if this is his first role or, or whatever, it felt like this was really him on the screen. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think it was a very smart casting choice. Yeah. So once again, Kevin, thank you so much for coming back uh, and doing an episode. We will continue to have you back as long as you continue to want to come back. We'll Anytime. Uh, new ideas. Please let us know when you're going to be in Brookfield. We'd love to see if we can get up there and uh, meet you uh, for a little while. And with, to let our fans know, a lot of them, although we do have fans all over the world, a lot of them are centrally located uh, in the Illinois area. So uh, please follow Kevin on Twitter. I said at Ouija, W-E-G-E-E. You can always follow us at, at 80s Podcast. Uh, at Awesome A's Podcast, you know our own thing. Uh, and we have Iron Eagle coming up for you uh, here in the next uh, week or two. Plus, we have a, another interview coming up. Uh, and then we're going to get back to just doing some movies for a while, I think, for a month or so. Uh, we've been bouncing here and there, but we have a long list of movies that people have been requesting. And we want to review them for you. So thank you so much, Kevin. Michael, you have anything? Thanks, guys. Uh, thank, thanks for... Thanks again for being on the show. Um, Kevin, this is awesome. Um, uh, uh, Thanks again for listening to the Awesome Age Podcast. This is Michael. This is Lawrence. Stay awesome, everybody. This is Kevin. (laughs) Stay awesome. Stay awesome. Go! You're still here? Don't worry about us. We'll be all right. It's over. Should you need us? Yes, should you need us for any reason at all.
Go home. Get out of here! Can't you see we don't want you anymore? Go.
Go! You're still here? Don't, don't, don't worry about us. We'll be all right. It's over. Should you need us? Yes. Should you need us? For any reason at all. Go home. Get out of here! Can't you see we don't want you anymore? Go.